following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. ask you to follow in your Bible in the fourth chapter of the letter to Philippi, Philippians chapter 4. You can recognize we're nearing an end of this series of considerations of this letter. I hope to conclude it next week. I'll use a moment to tell you now where I hope we will go next. I'm always mindful as we alternate between Old Testament and New and prophecy and psalm and gospel and letter to keep the balance, we need to keep the four Gospels in view. And uh, in my years with you, I early on, very early, one of the longer series I considered with you in 95, 96 was the Gospel of Luke, then later John, fairly long, and longer still, Matthew, just a couple of years ago. And I do feel it's necessary to keep going back to the Gospels so our young people will hear the words of Jesus himself and his parables and miracles. And so I do intend to go to Luke again now beginning in two weeks. I was telling the other pastors what a wrestling this was in my mind because it will be the first time of going to a major book and in effect repeating a book that I have considered. But if you if you memorized everything that happened in 1995 and 1996, I guess you can get an exemption from hearing Luke over the next year or more. But I can guarantee you, you will hear different things. So pray as, as we continue this ministry of God's Word that it be effectual and that the Holy Spirit use it. Philippians 4 is our concern this morning. I read the first nine verses. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for... My joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Our Father, we pray once more, you give us this mind of Christ, 
that Paul has exemplified to us, draw us into the joy and the peace of knowing him. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Many of you know the name of Blaise Pascal as a 17th century mathematician and scientist, a truly brilliant Frenchman who one of the earliest things he did to achieve notice in his scientific career was build a calculating machine that is so novel in the way it works. Many have said it actually is an early prototype, non-electronic, of course, of the computers that we have today, made 300 years before Bill Gates ever appeared on the scene. Pascal was so brilliant, he influenced scientific subjects in things like fluid mechanics and probability theory that I know nothing about whatsoever. But here was a mind of a man tuned as a fine instrument to be used for the benefit of mankind. Yet in the later portion of Pascal's 39 years that he lived on earth, much of his writing was not about science. In fact, the last few years he wrote almost exclusively about theology. And some of his scientific Uh, compatriots thought, well, what has happened to Pascal? He must be insane. All he can talk about now is the Bible. Well, as a matter of fact, this so-called madness of Pascal's was traceable to a great event in his life that happened when he was but 31 years old. There was a vivid night in which he had a vision of God, and really it appears that his Christian conversion was wrapped up in that. He wrote out a, an account of it in phrases and, and broken form as what is called the memorial of Pascal that was a folded sheet of paper found sewn inside the lining of his coat that he was wearing when he died. I'm just going to give you some excerpts from it. It's longer than what I will read, but here is what this man wrote down as a memorial of a great important night in his life. Quote, In the year of grace, 1654, on Monday the 23rd of November, from half past ten in the evening until after midnight, fire came. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of philosophers and scholars, God of Jesus Christ, certainty, great joy, peace, forgetfulness of the world and everything in it except God and Jesus Christ as he is found in the Gospels. Oh, let me never be separated from Jesus Christ. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Can you imagine the vision that inspired Pascal to write of that great event and keep it always as a memorial. He was speaking of a glowing conversion that seemed as if it echoed the words of Nehemiah chapter 8, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I remind you of the recurring way that a bell has been tolling in Philippians about its main theme, this unique joy of knowing Christ as your Lord. We've called this series The Authentic Joy of Knowing Christ. In chapter 1, Paul rejoiced in spite of prison chains. In chapter 2, he invited these Philippian friends to join him in 
in rejoicing, even though his physical life, it seemed, was being poured out on the altar of God. In chapter 3, 1, and again now in 4, 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. For Paul, it's, it's as if rejoicing was a way of saying a defiant, nevertheless, in the face of the circumstances of life. Here is what life is doing. Nevertheless, I will rejoice in my God in spite of it all. We know that our human nature is controlled almost entirely by momentary feelings. Are good things happening to me right now? I might be rejoicing. I joined many of you yesterday watching one of the finest halves of a football game that I've seen in my life. Not the first half of the Penn State game. The second half. What a time of absolute triumph for 104,000 people in State College as the team just rose as if from the grave to win a great victory. And let me tell you, the camera was panning, this pandemonium as fans were going crazy. Joe Paterno's 400th win. But every once in a while, the camera panned in on a group of people who were... And let me tell you, they all had ends for Northwestern on their headgear. They were not happy campers. Circumstantially, there were very happy people and there were absolutely sad people. And that just simply illustrates the way life can pull us up to the heights and leave us giddy with joy at times and then put us in the depths. But we're talking here about a joy that is not like that at all. A joy that is stable in its condition because it belongs to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as the living God indwelling me by faith. His Holy Spirit is in me. It's what Jesus was talking about in John 15, 11, when he told the disciples right before the cross, I'm going, you don't understand it, you're going to be sad. But he said, my joy will remain in you, and your joy is going to become complete. And so the theme today is really given to us in verse 4 of our text, and it is in many ways the theme of the whole book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. That simple statement. I say it again. Paul wanted to repeat it. Rejoice. Now, you might argue that no one can command joy. We could not have commanded those Northwestern fans yesterday as they were departing the stadium, be joyful, be happy, kick up your heels. They were completely defeated and deflated. It wasn't a joy that could be commanded in them. And yet here is a joy that we can say to people in Christ, rejoice not because of some happy circumstance, rejoice in the Lord. You can do that if you know him. You can rejoice in a fixed condition of knowing Christ day by day. First of all, then, we look at one application of this in here, a principle as Paul brings it out in verses 2 and 3. I would label it this way, rejoice that common bonds in Christ can mend fractured relationships. Here's a very unique passage as Paul writes, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Let me tell you, I know I could get your attention 
if I was preaching, no matter how you were dozing off, if I was preaching a sermon and made some moral point or something from the Scripture, and then I said, now, ruling elders Howard Jones and Raymond Brown, listen up, because you need to do what I just said from the Word of God. Now, you all know there's no Howard Jones, or I hope you know there's no Howard Jones or Raymond Brown here, so I can choose those fictitious names, and neither am I aware of our elders in any serious conflict with one another. But what if they were, and I called them on the carpet that way in the middle of a sermon? Wow, you'd say, that pastor's going to get fired or something. Well, look what Paul did here. It's almost unprecedented in the New Testament. In the midst of a letter written to a whole congregation, he names two individuals, two women, Euodia and Syntyche, and says, you have a strife. I plead with you to come to an agreement in the Lord. Now, these are not new members. They're not people who came in from the outside and suddenly started a problem in the, in the church of Philippi. These are founding members. Paul says, I worked with them. They worked beside me in the gospel. It would seem to be that they indeed were involved perhaps in the founding of that church. And I wonder if his reason for calling them on the carpet like this wasn't because they were mature. And he said, I know who these women are. I know what they're like. They aren't simply going to be offended by my saying this. I'm going to appeal to their mature standing in the Lord Jesus. They need to end this strife. Its poison is seeping out into the congregation. And notice, too, that a little bit of mystery here as he refers to someone who's called the yoke fellow. We don't know who this was in verse 3. He wants this loyal yoke fellow or leader to help mediate and work with these women. Now, as a skilled pastor, Paul wasn't simply commanding them and saying, straighten it out or else. He was pleading with them. And notice the basis. It's important that you see the basis of his appeal. He wasn't saying, cut it out, I'm ashamed of you or something. No, he was saying, in the Lord, you need to end this. And he added there the word in the end of verse 3, the idea that they are fellow workers whose names are both written in the book of life. You see that? How he's speaking to them, he's saying, I know you in the Lord. We're fellow participants in the grace of God. We have the same Savior. Whatever your difference, you have the same Lord. Your names are both in his book of life. On that basis, ladies, I appeal to you. Come together. Sure, Christians are imperfect. Our relations can fracture under stresses. God's Word elsewhere gives us a formula, a way to go about addressing those things. I won't go into Matthew 18, verse 15 and following right now about going to the other person and asking pardon or presenting the the fault and seeing if it can be worked out by forgiveness and respect or, if necessary, bringing another leader in. That's, That's a subject for another time. Paul isn't telling them the how of it here. He's telling them the basis of it. You are redeemed by one Savior, one Holy Spirit. That being true, you are at least 85% of the way towards an agreement. And it's dishonoring to God if you would continue and act in the way the world acts, like cranky, lawsuit, 
prone worldlings at each other's throats, dishonoring the kingdom. You are both adopted in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 20 is said they're both citizens of heaven. On the basis of common bonds in Christ, come together. Consider how to agree, you see. And he doesn't even tell them which one of them must make the first move. He doesn't say, all right, Euodia, I heard this started with you, so you better, you better apologize. No, he makes the same appeal. In effect, he's saying, you both need to make the first move. That's the way it's appealed to Christians, you see, when we have disagreements. Responsibility for the first move belongs to both of us. And if that's the case, it ought to be sure that at least one of us is going to do it. Controversies can be repaired in the Lord. We have a great deal of common ground. Our sovereign God is of vastly greater importance to us than our little wounded egos. And those who dwell in the sphere of the Lordship of Jesus are equipped to make this move to one another. Rejoice that common bonds in Christ can help you mend fractured relationships. Well, secondly, verses 6 and 7 give it another application, another way to rejoice, and that is rejoice as you realize in prayer that God's peace stands sentinel over you. Aren't we anxious about a lot of things? We live in anxious days. We're glad when we hear the news and Something mundane, you know, some little local thing is, is in the headline. Some, uh, maybe a burglary or something like that makes the, uh, uh, some unusual crime or, or accident, or not that accidents are ever things to be relieved about, but, but when something local or relatively small is on the front page of the paper, we're glad, right? Not an airplane blowing up or some new terror coming to us. We have enough anxieties in our lives, enough things that creep up on us in the night and problems that we wrestle over and cannot sleep because they're going on in our lives and in our families. But how would we react in our anxieties if we knew and believed that Christ Jesus, the Lord, is standing guard duty over us? Our text says He will. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. A wonderful promise here. Not just words that sound good. A promise that God's supernatural peace will come to counteract the anxiety that is most at work on you today. You know, many people purchase for themselves home security systems. I'm sure many of you have them. We've had them at a couple different times in houses that we own, never because we put them in, but someone before us did, and I usually reached a point where I got so tired of false alarms and problems and everything else that I just almost wished it wasn't there. And a home security system might protect you. It might repel something you're anxious about. But what if somebody could come out with this? Here would be the real home security system. Let's say some former Marine or Special Forces Army man, Army Ranger, 
gets together people with similar training like himself who are extremely capable of dealing with foes and adversaries and sells a service. I will sell you a service that 24 hours a day, a special forces trooper, a marine, a ranger, someone like this, for on a six-hour shift at a time, will personally guard your home. All of its perimeters will be guarded. Would you feel secure? I, I think I'd trust that better than an electronic security system. And we're being taught here that Jesus Christ, in effect, is ready to stand as a sentinel on guard around us if we will bring to Him those anxieties, those worries that we fruitlessly pursue in our lives. He'll put us inside a castle and walk the ramparts of it Himself to guard us against that which we fear. How do we get a gift like that? Well, verse 7 of our text actually says, God's peace, a sentinel peace, comes to us when we pray with thanksgiving. Prayer is the language by which we go to God and acknowledge our creaturely weakness and, and dependence on Him, and we thank Him. We say, Lord, I thank You for Your mercies. Thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for what You've done in the past. And as we are thanking Him, we are more and more recognizing His sovereign position of providence over us. After all, anxiety begins when we falsely make the assumption of, I have to solve this particular issue, whatever it is, a big test coming up or some area where you have to perform in life or some negative experience that's headed your way that you're fretting over. You're saying, I have to deal with this, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. Well, that's exactly it. You don't need to face it alone. Paul says, begin to pray. He doesn't just say, stop worrying. He gives you something to do. Pray. And pray with thanksgiving. Because when you pray with thanksgiving, you are putting yourself in a place of acknowledging the goodness and the mercy and the strength of your heavenly Father already at work in your life in the past. You're moving out from under the grip that mere circumstances can so easily have upon you. You're not in control of your circumstances. Sure, you should be anxious about it if your assumption is I'm in control. You're not. God is. So speak to the one who's in control. Speak to the one who can steer your course. Speak to the one who knows all that will happen from beginning to end already, and there will come to you. Paul says, look, I think if I can paraphrase, I can't explain it to you. He says, I don't, I don't understand it. It transcends understanding. It's supernatural. It's peace. After all, prayer is supernatural conversation with the true and living God. So why should you be surprised if it brings a supernatural result to you? It's not a mechanical thing of, you know, come to God in prayer, take your quarter, put it in the slot, push the button for what you want, boom, down comes the request. That's not prayer. That's never prayer. Prayer is a supernatural dialogue with the living God. And so Paul says the peace that he brings is something that I just can't explain. I can't tell you how it works, but I know that it does. It mounts a guard over me. 
And it takes away that anxiety that I've had that I've got to solve it. Rejoice in this, he says. Rejoice that God will give you his peace to deal with your anxieties. Well, thirdly, we look at verses 8 and 9, a much understood passage, I think. Because it's a passage that has a kind of literary flavor to it in the repeated phrases, it's often misinterpreted. I see this passage saying, Rejoice as excellent doctrines of the gospel are put to work in your daily life. And here's how I think people misinterpret it. They read it saying these rolling cadences, rolling phrases, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure. And they come away from it thinking, well, what is that talking about? It seems to me as if Paul's saying what you need to do is think wonderful thoughts, lovely, inspiring thoughts. You know, the Buddhist would tell you what you need to do is, is vacate your mind of all thoughts. Just empty yourself, and somehow that helps you. Not sure how. But people would say, no, what you need to do is fill up your mind with lovely things, true things, beautiful poetry, beautiful literature, music of the choir, music of the woodwind quartet, and, and let your mind just resonate with all kinds of loveliness. No. That's not what this is teaching. That's a total misunderstanding. You have to understand that when Paul used the word whatever here repeatedly, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, he meant one thing. He meant the doctrines of the gospel of Christ that he's been talking about all through this entire letter. Don't clip this, these two verses out as if they were unattached from the rest of the letter. They're all part of the flow here. What's he been talking about all this time? The greatness of the work of Christ, who in chapter 2 was pictured in this magnificent way of condescending from the height of deity to the lowly place of the cross, clinging to him, knowing him, desiring him, trusting him through anything that happens. That's what this letter's been about. That's whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Christ! Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ interceding, Christ guarding. And he's saying, fill your mind. Because you see, the battleground is your mind. That's the battleground where you'll be led astray. If your mind starts telling you, oh, everything's lost, you can't do it, it's impossible, then you've lost. But Paul says, in your mind, think on the great things of God. I know when I began to use a computer, I haven't heard this phrase used in a long time, but uh, one of the things I was taught about a computer in early days was, of course, it's just a machine. It's not some kind of a brilliant, uh, you know, it's not Blaise Pascal, it's a machine. And, And there it is, it sits there, and it will give you some wonderful results and and put some things together in great combinations, but it's all based on whatever information is first put into it. And the computer uh, people, I remember hearing the, the phrase a lot, garbage in, garbage out. Remember that? If you put useless information in your computer, you'll never get anything useful out of it. That's simple enough. Well, Paul is actually saying, in a manner of speaking here, with this whatever that we're supposed to stock our minds with is the gospel. Gospel in, gospel out. When your mind is absorbed and saturated in the great truths of God, 
They're going to come out and they're going to influence your behavior in every way. The British Christian G.K. Chesterton said once, the object of opening your mind, as in opening your mouth, is to be able to shut it again on something solid. Put something in that mind. Something that will influence your behavior from that day forward. And so Paul says, whatever you've seen or heard from me, put that into practice. Work that out day by day. And we know what that is, his single-minded devotion to Christ that transcended his circumstances. Here he was, a prisoner, ready to die, and yet the man's joyful. Joy is oozing out of him all over the place, and he keeps saying it. And he's not just, you know, like a condemned man whistling on the way to the gallows or something to put on a brave front. It was real. The joy was just coming out of all his pores. As Paul was doing what he said in 2 Corinthians 10, taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So you see how rejoicing in the Lord is so different from the kind of joy the Penn State fans had yesterday. I'm happy for them. I'm not sure whether they'll have that same experience when it's the Ohio State game. Not quite sure. Maybe they will. I know somebody here who knows how that game's going to go or thinks he does. But that's circumstantial. That's all based on carrying a football up and down the field. And Paul's saying, your joy in Christ isn't like that. It's anchored. It's solid. It's based on the historic things, the true things, the noble, pure things that God has done in Christ. Suppose two men were... We're both going to build a, a, a giant radio transmission tower, one of these tall, narrow towers that goes 200 feet in the air. There's, there's an example as you go up the road past Elizabethtown towards the, the airport up there. There's a whole subdivision spread out at the feet of this great big tower. I think many of you know what I'm talking about. And I can't go by there without thinking. Of, if I was going to buy a house in that subdivision, I would ask, how tall is that tower? And then I would get out my tape and measure to make sure the house I was buying was at least 10 feet beyond the height of that tower because, boy, oh, boy, does that look threatening. It's so tall. What if two men were building these gigantic towers? And you know they have these guy lines that come down, these cables that I don't know how many. Some engineer could probably tell me how many they use. But let's say 20 guy lines holding each tower. And one engineer's building, and he's on a low budget. And he says, all right, look, I've, I've built this thing right. I know it's put together right. So it doesn't matter that much how the guy lines are fastened. I'll just fasten one to the branch of this tree and another one to this shrub over here and that shrub over there. And then maybe a, a two-foot wooden peg in the ground will hold this other one. But then the other man's building his tower right. And I don't know the engineering specs, but I'm sure it's, it's put, you know, deep concrete in the ground with a, a 10-foot metal bolt and the cable anchored to that, and that's the proper way. Which tower is going to stand and endure and abide? There's no mystery about that at all, is there, in a high gale? The tower anchored to tree branches and shrubs is going down. And Paul is saying here, anchor your joy. 
to what Jesus Christ has done in history, how you've seen it working out in my life as I've applied it. If I have shown Christ to you in the midst of this prison experience, Christ anchored deep in me, you work that out. And so I think he can actually command us to rejoice if we're in Christ. If you say you can't command joy, then maybe you're talking about the circumstantial kind, which I agree you cannot command that. But here's a prisoner in a real jail who nevertheless is spiritually free and full of exuberant confidence in his Lord because the only captivity that held Paul was the captivity of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter, you see, if you're on the edge of financial ruin, if your health has had some bad verdict put over it, as I know folks in our congregation, some of them are are waiting to find out, am I going to live or die? How is this treatment going to work out? I know folks in this congregation whose families are unraveling in very painful circumstances. You may be the person who's sinned somehow, and you're so shamed you can't tell anybody about it, and you say it. Joy, rejoicing, are you kidding? Well, in all those calamities, the question is, do you have Christ? And if you say, well, I had him sometime in my life, then I want to tell you, he certainly has you, whether you feel in contact with him right now or not. And there is no circumstance you can come to that can break his grip on your life. Rejoice in the Lord, not in the circumstance. Rejoice in the Lord. You can do that always. Paul elsewhere said, I live and yet it is not me who lives but Christ in me. The most important thing for you to know today before you go out of this building is, can you say that? Christ is living in me. Have you bowed before him? Have you asked him to be your Lord? Have you asked him to take over government of your life and to give you the peace of a clean, righteous life because of what he did on the cross? If you have done that, if you have done that, then I can say to you as a command by this apostle, rejoice in the Lord and do it always. Do it as Peter told us in his first letter. In these words, he wrote, Although you have not seen Christ, and we haven't seen him face to face, have we? Although no one here has seen Christ, Peter said, You love him. Although you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy, anchored deep, real, true, and eternal. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice always for his name's sake. Our Father, our lives and our glum faces may not always show it, but we are thankful for that which is anchored deep, not something that depends on the giddiness of what our team has done today or yesterday. We praise you for the author of joy. 
And Father, I pray that this solid state of existence and the great peace that flows from it would be discovered by some here. To your praise and your honor, in Jesus' name, amen.